You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, friends. Randy Bolander here on the Third Cup of Coffee. Glad to have you with me. I hope that your coffee cup is full. I hope that your heart is full. I hope that you never have to choose between those two. I don't. It would be difficult, frankly, because in some ways a full cup of coffee can lead to a full heart, at least for a little while. No, no, no. We want your heart to be full. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Hey, we are coming off our third week of live services at the bridge, and it's so exciting. And I know that sounds like it's some big production. It's really not. We uh, have intentionally not used the language of launching uh, because that seems like a lot of fire and explosions. And it's not that. It's uh, a group of friends and new friends that are coming alongside us uh, who are gathering to worship and study the scripture and encourage one another. And so it's, you know what, it just feels organic and it feels good. And I have enjoyed teaching live so much. I cannot tell you how much easier it is and how much more pleasurable it is to see people's faces and to be able to uh, talk with them. We spoke this week about missions and about the idea of uh, being a church that gives financially to missions or being a church that actually sends missionaries and uh, what the difference on those is and why it's important. And we heard from two missionary couples from our midst. I think you'll enjoy it. Stay with us. This week, my original plan was to move on to another key part of what we are building, which is community. And I am super eager to talk about that. I have lots of thoughts. The Bible says a lot about community. Most of what we think about and expect in community are things that we have cooked up and are not things that the Bible even talks about. And there are some folks that you look at that are a train wreck and get plugged into a community and the Lord begins to change them radically. And then there are other people who seem to live very whole, very godly, very together lives, but are often struggling and saying, I just, I can't find community. And so we're going to talk about what the Bible actually promises and what that looks like in our own lives. But in the middle of the week, it struck me that we're in a really unique position here and I don't want to uh, forge on with my original plan if we're presented with an opportunity to do something unique that we might not be able to do for a long while. And that's the case today. I'll explain just in a little bit. In these early weeks of being in person, you realize we're making history here. This is the first time we've met three weeks in a row in person. It's never happened in church history. <laughs> Finally, three weeks in a row. And uh, in these early weeks, I don't want to overlook the fact that we are setting the groundwork for things that will establish who we are. And one of those things relates to missions and sending and how we send missionaries. For the first time, uh, we've got a couple of our missionary couples with us, and we want to hear from them as well. I didn't want to just blow past that. In other church contexts, when they talk about missions, oftentimes what they're talking about is giving to missions. Totally valid. We'll talk about that this morning as well. But I want to raise the bar on how we think about missions and reaching the world and talk about the bridge being a sending church, what it means to send people on a global level, on a regional level, even on a local level, that when we walk out these doors, we realize we are being sent to be more than we would be if we were not a part of this body. Again, when people talk about missions, they often think about giving. 
And there's nothing wrong with that. There is uh, actually it's Bible 101 that we would contribute financially to the spreading of the gospel around the world. That's part of our basic Christian faith, supporting the gospel and expanding the kingdom of God with our resources and with our skills. All of that is baked into the scripture. And it's not just so that we can get work done on behalf of the kingdom. It's actually tied to our own well-being and our own personal supply. How many of you have ever, in a moment of need, quoted that verse to yourself or for a friend and said, my God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory? How many of you have pulled that verse out when you were like 20 bucks short for rent or you're buying a Chirito and you get up to the window and realize, I don't even know if a Chirito is a thing. It just sounds like something on the Taco Bell menu. And it is. It's just, I just felt right. How would you know? Okay, she's a lot of Taco Bell. I knew that. <laughs> but you're, you're going to buy your Chirito, and you, you've got $2.10, and it's $2.28, and you get up to the drive-thru, and you're digging through the cushions, and then you've come up with the other, and you're like, my God, she'll supply all my need. No, he just got a Chirito, okay? That's not what that verse actually is about. That verse is not primarily tied to your needs. Your needs are not the trigger for God's supply in your life. Isn't that an awkward thought? <laughs> that God doesn't always respond to need. If he did, there would be no needy believers anywhere on the earth. You look around the earth, there's people in need all over. But he doesn't always respond to need. However, that verse is there. My God will supply all my needs according to his riches and glory. What is it talking about there? It's actually the response to a group of people who supported Paul as a missionary. If you go to the book of Philippians, chapter 4, starting in 14. Just read a couple of verses here. It says, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. Everybody wants to share your, your joy. Paul says, thank you for sharing my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except only you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. He's saying to the church of Philippi, you've supported me as a missionary. Then he goes on to say, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. He's like, honestly, it's been helpful, but I'd have been okay with or without your gifts. What I'm excited about is when you give, there's fruit in your life. He's like, your giving to me is actually better for you than it is for me. He said, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Ephroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory. He's like, that's actually tied to supporting the efforts of missionaries around the world. That isn't about you getting your Chirito. That is about you engaging with the gospel and saying, I'm going to meet others' needs, and in doing that, something reciprocal happens. Are you saying, Randy, is that give to get? No, it's not like that, but there is some of that. There is this sense that in our generosity, the Lord supplies all our needs. There's an intensity here that he speaks about giving to missions. And sometimes it makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Can you imagine if we sat down this morning and I directed you, turn to your neighbor. I'm not a turn to your neighbor guy. Don't panic. I don't think I've ever said that in seriousness. But were I to say, turn to your neighbor and say, so how much are you giving this month? 
We make for awkward conversations. We don't do that. Most people are very private about their giving, even generous people. Why is Paul writing publicly about their mission support to him? And why does that belong in the Bible? Like, if it's something that we don't talk about that much. Especially when Paul had a reputation of being a tent maker. He had a side job. That's how Paul made most of his support. Acts 18 and 3, he meets Aquila and Priscilla, and it says, because he was of the same trade, they were tent makers, he was a tent maker, he stayed with them and he worked, because they were tent makers by trade. Acts 20, 34, he says, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessity and to those who are with me. He's like, I've kind of made my own way by being a tent maker. That's how I've supported my missions. Why is he suddenly talking about them giving to missions? In light of providing to him for himself, why does he talk about others giving money and that allows him to continue to do that ministry? Two reasons he talks about giving to missions. One, Because giving to missions endeavors is less about economics, and it's more about our own spiritual growth. Paul was a missionary, but he was a teacher. And he said, I'm going to teach you about giving and the fact that when you give, you actually grow. It's a discipline in your life. The second reason that he talks to them about giving, because the support system of being a tent maker for Paul up until that point had more to do with Jewish tradition than it did the word of God. While Jewish tradition is beautiful and it's real, this is hard for some of you to hear. It's not all in the Bible. It's not. And I know that many are very, very uh, committed to lots of the Jewish traditions and they're beautiful and there's meaning to them. But some of them are things that human beings made up along the way. And the fact that it was Jewish tradition doesn't necessarily mean it was in the Bible. And Paul is a tent maker because many of the rabbis of that day had side jobs. That's how rabbis made their way. Most rabbis had a side job, and Paul was in the context of first century Judaism, and so he did what most of the rabbis did. And even today, many people honorably serve the Lord and work outside of that, and they're bivocational, and it's not wrong, and it's also not inherently right. It's just different. In fact, the bivocational rabbinical system of how they would support teachers of that day is not what God described and laid out in the way of the Old Testament when the Levites were put into place. In the Old Testament, the tribe of Levi was set aside to minister exclusively to the Lord. They had a special arrangement with God, and it meant two things. As a Levite, number one, you didn't get any land. All the other tribes got land. God said, "Uh, except for you guys. I'm setting you aside for me. I am your inheritance. Levites couldn't own land. The second thing the Levites got that nobody else got was they were provided for by the offerings and the tithes that were brought in to the tabernacle. Deuteronomy 18, 1 and 2. The Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food as offerings of their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. It's important to understand as a Levite, you ministered to the Lord. Now, as a rabbi, you built a group of people who followed your teaching. That's why they called Jesus. At times, they would call him rabbi. He was an itinerant traveling teacher, and he had these people. But there were lots of rabbis. Now, how did you get to become a Levite? You were born into it. How did you get to become a rabbi? 
another rabbi said you were a rabbi. That's how you got to be a rabbi. You, you trained under another rabbi. And how did you become a powerful rabbi? You, became, you had a lot of other rabbis under you. It was a hair's breadth away from multi-level marketing. <laughs> right? It's like, you're my ninth rabbi downline. And it wasn't wrong. And lots of good came out of it. I'm not saying it was bad, but it was different than the Levites. The Levites ministered to the Lord and the Lord provided for them. Most rabbis had second jobs because they couldn't gather a crowd that was large enough to meet their needs. It's been said by some people that Jesus only ministered publicly the last three years of his life because he spent the first 30 putting money away knowing he was going into ministry. He's like, I got about three years of cash and then, you know, this is going to be it. You were born a Levite, but you became a rabbi by recognition of another rabbi. And the Lord provided for those who ministered to him. But apparently the rabbis didn't get the same deal. They were kind of on their own. And there were also, because of that, probably rabbis who did not necessarily have the call of God in their life. They just thought, I'm just going to go into this. But those who were Levites, God had identified them and said, no, you're mine. So some preach for a job, as the rabbis did. But others say, no, 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 Lord, I just want to move your heart. If I move your heart, that will be enough. And ministry done for people in the sense of the rabbis can be paid for a thousand different ways. But ministry done unto the Lord, the Lord says, I'm responsible for that. This is a part of why we are so deeply linked with the prayer movement. Because whatever we do here at the bridge, we want it to move his heart. All right, I want to meet people's needs. I want to help orphans. I want to meet your neighbor's needs. I want to encourage people in the Lord. But at the end of the day, if what we're doing does not move his heart, we are doing something less than. Last week, we were setting up and kind of plugging in, getting everything done, set up, and, uh, because we obviously is not our facility. In fact, we never quite know what we'll find when we get here. In fact, trees today. We have trees. Some of you are wondering, what's he gonna, how's he going to tie the tree? No, trees have nothing to do. I thought about preaching about Jesus cursing the, the tree and there'd be no figs, but I didn't have time. I didn't know the trees were going to be here until I got here. But we're here setting up, and um, pastors go through this mental gymnastics before any service, where anything that could possibly go wrong goes through your mind. And I'm a little bit nervous about it, and I'm not normally, but it's just I'm a little anxious about it. And it's like the Lord said to me, uh, if you're doing this for people, you're on your own. But if you're doing this for me, I'm going to be so happy with this. It's like, you do this to bless my heart, and I will meet all of the needs of the entire congregation. So rabbis, in this context, for the Jews, were preachers that often had other income sources. And Paul started as a tent maker in the Jewish culture. But as the church began to reach more Gentiles and that idea of doing manual labor looked more like something that slaves would do, he became supported by mission support. And that's how he continued out through the rest of his ministry. The early church gave offerings to those doing the work of the ministry to free them up to do more, not so that they would have to do less. And to do it for the Lord, not do it for the money. So why do we support missions around the globe? There's great support for congregations helping expand the kingdom beyond our own scope of influence. 
or what we would call supporting missions. But there's also great support in the Bible for what we would call sending or sending missionaries out, whether it's around the world or literally back to your paying jobs as missionaries on behalf of the bridge and on behalf of Jesus. Uh, Turn to Acts 13 for a moment. Acts 13 outlines one of the most vibrant congregations you'll ever read about. It is in a city called Antioch. Now, one of the problems with uh, how we think about Bible geography is if it's all on that little map, it can't be very far away, right? You look, you look at, when, if you were to be forced to take a Bible geography quiz, most of us would fail miserably. We don't know where things are. And we think everything's close because everybody walked. And how far are you going to walk? Antioch was actually 7,000 miles overland from Jerusalem. That's a long, some of you are like, I thought it was 50. I know. It's 7,000 miles away. It's in southern Turkey. The point being, it was far outside the role and expectation of what what Jewish leaders would have. It's it's in a different world. And the Bible lists in another place the leaders. Antioch was full of strong leaders and prophets and pastors. And it, it, it was a unusually talented group of people. Sometimes when I read about Antioch, honestly, it, it resonates with us here at the bridge of like the people the Lord has put together. I'm like, wow, how do these people assemble? And in Acts 13, 2 and 3, you've got this incredibly gifted, talented group of people. And it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Whereas the church of Philippi that we read about earlier supported Paul's giving with, or Paul's mission with finances, and that pleased God, the church of Antioch, the stronger congregation with the deep bench, so to speak, of leaders, said, we're not just going to support financially, we're actually going to send people. We're going to send from within our own congregation to go expand the kingdom. That's the difference between giving to missions and sending And we want to be a church like Antioch. Yes, we want to give, but we also want to export people to go do the work of the ministry across the oceans and across the street. When we participate in a congregation that is a part of sending, it touches a number of spots on our spiritual map in our heart. And it changes us inwardly. Let me give you four touch points real quick. And then we're going to talk to some friends, okay? Touch point number one When we are a part of a sending congregation, we are invited to partnership with God, and we answer that by sending. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded to you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. When we partner with him, we encounter a special level of God's presence. Say, how do we get that you were with us till the end of the age thing? Because they were a part of exporting the gospel. That's who he promised that to. He says, if you send, I'll go with them and I'll go with you. God is everywhere, but he assures his presence, and I believe it in a manifest way, will go with those who are involved in exporting the kingdom and making disciples. So that touch point is with presence. When we 
export and when we send the gospel, we have a special presence of the Lord that dwells in our midst. Touch point number two, in sending money and in sending people, we find our own calling. It's graduation season, okay? High school graduations, college graduations. Joe Shukart's not with us this morning. Joe graduated from uh, Mid-American with, a de- I think, a degree in theology or pastoral ministry. If you, if you don't know Joe, he's been down here the last couple weeks in a, in a wheelchair. He's going on to seminary. I, and Kelsey graduated yesterday. Rachel Faagutu graduated. They're not with us. Uh, Rachel graduated with a 4.0, with a master's. You know the worst part about graduating? So what are you going to do next? Right? It's the question. Oh, that's great. What are you going to do next? Some of you have like panic attacks. Remember graduating from high school. What do you, I don't know. I'm 17 years old. That question of what are you going to do next? Think for a moment, the disciples, three years of ministry with Jesus as an advanced master's degree in fish multiplication and leprosy treatment. For three years, they've studied under this rabbi. He ascends to the Father, and everybody's looking at him going, what are you going to do next? John 20, 21, Jesus said, as the Father sent me, I am sending you. It's like, that's what you're going to do next. You will find your calling in expanding the borders of the kingdom of God. Whether it is across the ocean or across the street in your workplace, whatever you're doing, if you're expanding the kingdom, that's what you were made to do. Touch point number one, you find his presence. Touch point number two, you find a calling. Touch point number three, and in giving and sending people, it is an external indicator of compassion for the human soul. Turn to Romans for a moment. Romans chapter 10, verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. How can we read this without being moved by compassion for those that do not have what we have in the way of an understanding of who God is? At our core... There's something that moves us to compassion when we realize we have something that somebody else does not have, doesn't it? If you've ever traveled to a a disadvantaged country and you saw how other people live. Remember the first time I saw real poverty and I came back to, at the time we had a a, a tiny three-bedroom ranch house and I was embarrassed to go into my own home. Because I thought, what is different than me other than where I was born? I was moved by compassion to see what other people had or did not have in comparison to what I have. That is the compassion that stirs up within us when we are sent and realize that if we don't go, how will they hear? Think about what you have been through in the last year. And in your darkest moments, you can, oh, Jesus, I just need, and he's visited you in those moments. Imagine going through that, not even knowing what name to call on. The anxiety and the tension. Spoke this week with missionaries from Colombia. 
Colombia during the pandemic has been shut down in a way that none of us have seen. I mean, it's like stay in your homes. Kids have not been out playing in the yard. They're having this huge wave of, of uh, problems with people dealing with intense anxiety because they, they don't even know the name of Jesus to call on. When we, when we respond like this, we're, it's, a, it's an identifier of compassion in our own hearts. How can we not go and speak to people? who don't have the peace that we have. Touch point number four, and really briefly, and then we want to talk to some other folks. Going and sending results in the fullness of God's plan. Results in the fullness of God's plan. If you've been married very long, you come to some sort of agreement about whose chores are what, right? And it isn't a matter of that's men's work or women's work. No, it's just you find a way to get things done. Okay, And it's not to say that the spouse doesn't ever do those things, but by and large, you do those things. There are things that mostly Kelsey does. There are things that mostly I do. And we don't take it as offense if we expect the other one to do that. It's perfectly allowable for anyone in my family to open the drawer where the trash is and go, because uh, that's what I do. I got to take trash out. Not to say that nobody else does, but mostly I do. Those are jobs. We just fall into these roles. And if we ignore those roles that we've fallen into, discussions occur. Okay, right? And the discussion abbreviated is one saying to the other, this happens in all marriages, hey, that was your responsibility. That was up to you to do. Some of us have followed Jesus for 30 years and have not really understood the responsibilities we have in the expansion of the kingdom. Just haven't even thought about it. You have more responsibility in the fullness of God's plan happening than you realize. History does not come to its destined climax without the people of God extending the kingdom to the furthest reaches of the earth. Matthew 24, 14 says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That sounds so dire, doesn't it? And then the end will come. It's like the black curtain. No, no, no. That means then Jesus returns to the earth and rules the earth for a thousand years, and we see perfect leadership, and we have perfect union with him, but that doesn't happen until the gospel is preached all around the world. What Matthew calls the gospel being preached, it's going to look a lot of different ways in a lot of different settings, but we believe we are stepping into a season where sending people, again, across the globe or just into their workplace to the nations or to our neighbors is going to increase exponentially, and it will bring on the return of Jesus, we would hope, even in our lifetimes. Now, maybe not. Maybe it's in our kids' lifetimes, or our, but is there anything we can do to bring it? Why would we not do that? We're invited to partnership. We're invited to find our calling. It's an indicator of our compassion, and it's on the verge of calling him back to this planet. All of that means we desperately want to be involved in sending and in being sent, not just in supporting missionaries financially, but in being a part of going. Now, most Sunday mornings, Somebody teaches. That's what I've been trying to do here. 
But this morning, we've got a really unique opportunity to do a little bit more than that. And that opportunity lies in the fact that we have missionaries from our family that we have sent that are here. And I just didn't want to blow past this and not take a moment and recognize that. So just to kind of finish things out here this morning, I want to ask if the Grenzes and the Hickeys would join me for a second. You guys come on down and grab a seat. We've got a couple of bikes here. And Pat, can you grab that? fourth seat so we don't play musical chairs you want to use a chair okay if somebody can grab him a chair that'd be great thanks guys i asked if uh, grenzes and hickeys would join us because we almost never have an opportunity to hear from those that we have sent in the way that we've sent these four if you are new Steve and Kristen on the end are missionaries with Alaska Christian College. I got the name right. Um, and we sent them to Alaska Christian College uh, in October. They moved to Alaska in October. Just let that sink in for a minute. So we can only go up from here. Days are getting longer. And the Grenzes uh, have a long history in missions, uh, have been in and out of how many countries have you guys been to? I don't know. Does not know how many countries he's been to. Okay. Uh, about a dozen. And just recently got back from a short-term trip to Iraq. And so we wanted to take a little bit and just hear from them. Because I can tell you about sending for days and days and days. But until you talk to people who have been sent, sometimes it's a little bit hard to understand. So this morning, I want to have a bit of a conversation with the four of you and ask a couple of questions. And we'll just see where it goes. Stephen Christian, you've been gone how many months now? Since October. Seven. Okay, didn't mean to make you do math, Kristen. Um, been gone since October in Alaska, purchased a home. You're there. What would you say are your greatest opportunities, but also your greatest challenges you guys are facing right now? There's a button on it. I said that with great faith. I've never held that microphone. About. There's a button on it. It's on the bottom, or you can swap. Okay. Hey, thanks for giving us the opportunity to speak. Um, I would say, okay, greatest opportunities and greatest challenges. So we have, um, in several different ways, felt like we have plugged in to our community. I am tutoring at the college. We have a, Steve has got a core group of guys who he meets with weekly for discipleship through the school. We have students in our home every other Saturday night for worship, prayer, and um, then they stay and play games. You know, it's 18 below. They like to go outside and build a fire. So, you know, what are you going to do? Um, and then we have started kind of a home church where we have our neighbors who are coming to church. And then once we get back, one of the guys from Steve's core group is going to be bringing his grandparents along. And so we have home church. So opportunities are endless. I mean, just to be able to encounter people, meet people, live with people, do life is incredible. Talk a little bit about your students. Where are they coming from? Sure, absolutely. So the students at Alaska Christian College are 98% Alaskan Native students. They come from villages um, scattered mostly around the northwest coast of, of Alaska. Um, they are amazing kids. They have 
I mean, there's so much to learn about native Alaskan culture. It's, it's incredible. Um, from the fact that they use salmon esophagus kind of as a piece of gum because it chews well, just <laughs> anyway, to um, what it means to be subsistence, to the fact that alcoholism is rampant, rape is rampant, um, suicides <clears throat> beyond number. And so the challenges there are how do you work with students at a school who have come from villages where they have so much trauma in their background and yet who is Jesus and how does he make a difference in my life today is very real. Yeah. So does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, Steve, if you can tell a little bit about, you've got a young guy who just kind of follows you around. Yeah, I got a little guy named Clement and he just wants to be near me. And so he, I think he's pretty high fetal alcohol syndrome, but um, he just, you know, can I follow you today? And I'm like, yep, yep, you can. So here we go all day long. Now can I come home with you? And I'm like, well, maybe tomorrow night, you know, and. and um, because Clement's how old? Oh, he's probably 19, 19 or 20. We found him when we were leaving. We found him at the airport wandering around. And I'm like, Clement, wow, just meet you here. That's what a coincidence. He goes, yeah, I didn't get a ticket before I came. I'm like, oh, you know. And so, and then he had four bags with him to get back to his village. And, and when I say bags, I mean a box that's open. So we had to get him on the plane. He's just a real simple guy, but they're not all like that. But he, he's a precious little human being that um, likes us. About 80% of our students have fetal alcohol syndrome somewhere on the spectrum. And so a fetal alcohol syndrome child student has to work harder at what they do, but everything has to be extraordinarily concrete. And so to help academically through that is a challenge, but also then just kind of the day-to-day -day life. He's, Clement is used to being in a village with a very small plane that will fly from village to village, and he's one of six people on the plane, so he can just carry a box. And yeah, and so it's a different ballgame, so. Yeah, wow. So Grenzes just got back from Iraq, sent your kids to South Dakota and went to Iraq for 11 days. I, what I want to hear from you a little bit is uh, kind of who you connected with, um, why you went. And I think a question a lot of us had, how do you balance calling with safety, knowing you've got small kids and it's not like going to Iowa. It's not, no. Um, so, so context, I'll share on that. Carla will share on the safety piece because she's got the wisdom and, and all that in that area. But the context is, think back about seven years, 2014, the earth was in the midst of kind of this season of, there's this new terrorist group rising up really from 2012 called ISIS. What are they doing? What's it about? It's in the Middle East. And in 2014, they sought to wipe out a people group called the Yazidis. It's a people group of about 800,000 globally, um, along with Syrians and Kurds. And just that whole region was really decimated. And so from 2014 until now, there's been about a half a million displaced people in northern Iraq. A half a million. That's a lot of people. And we started hearing about it just following the news. We were in China at the time, and the Lord started gripping our hearts for the Kurds and the Yazidis. Um, I mean, we had never been there. We had never heard of these people. We had no connection. But we knew that 
he's giving this to us to pray. And so we started gathering with Chinese believers from 2015, 2016 on, and, and just started praying for the Lord to break in. We were following the news, uh, just keeping track of what was happening and, and petitioning heaven to break in. Um, during that same time, we got connected with a few different groups. One of them is called Springs of Hope. Uh, a friend of ours leads that organization, and, and their mission really is to go into places of conflict, of crisis, where there's been crimes against humanity, and bring restoration, rehabilitation, and empowerment to raise up those who have been oppressed and, and really crushed to becoming leaders in, their, in, their, in, in the restoration of their people and their society. Um, and so we went in really to serve with this organization uh, we went in and served at a, at a refugee camp uh, in Kurdistan, northern Iraq. Um, amazing time. We, we'll, we can share more stories another time with you guys. Um, but really to, to be on the ground with these people, the Kurds and the Yazidis, who have suffered things that, you know, I, I'm hearing stories. I'm like, I have no reference for this. It, it's beyond what I can comprehend that you've had to walk through, and yet you're here and you enjoy soccer and volleyball and good food and, and joking around, um, amazing time. And so that was a primary connection. The other one was with the House of Prayer in Erbil, Iraq. That's been there for about 10 years. And, and that House of Prayer actually preceded uh, ISIS in the region. And the Lord really sent a group in to raise up incense for the days to come. So that's a little bit of the context of, of what we were going into and really, if you were there at Easter, Randy gave an amazing message on how Jesus can't be contained, the gospel can't be contained. I forget the third one, but as he's preaching, I'm like, the song, the incense, the song of the beauty of Jesus can't be contained. And so that was what we really went in. We want to see Jesus seen and loved and worshiped in this region in tangible ways, helping refugees, and in spiritual ways in prayer and worship. So we went um, with just the desire to plow in prayer specifically and to really grow in our heart and our burden for the Yazidis. Um, and the Lord really did that, as well as just scouting opportunities for longer-term partnership, um, whether for us or for teams that we would bring back in the future and, and working with um, various missionaries that are on the field now. Um, but in regards to safety, I feel like Daniel could honestly share more because He's written papers on, I mean, having a risk, uh, I mean, having a theology on suffering and on risk. And I think that's really important and valuable for all believers to have. Um, do you want to share a little bit about that? And I'll share my testimony after that. I think for us, the question, as we look at missions and specifically the unreached people, I read a quote that a friend said today, and it's like, how sobering should it feel to us that 2,000 years later, the term unreached people still exists. And I'm just like, I'm gripped that there's people that have never heard the name of Jesus. I remember my first trip to China. This is a very brief story. We were going into these villages, several days drive from civilization. And, and we got to one village and, and culturally people don't wanna say, I don't know. They'll, they'll just give you an answer. So we said, have you ever heard of Jesus? And they said, they say, paused for a minute. They said, yeah, yeah, my uncle knows him. He lives in the village down the road, you know, but, but just the reality, like there's people that don't know who he is. And, and so that's kind of the foundation of it for us. It's like, he's worthy of it. 
He's worthy of us pouring our lives out. That's, that's the foundation. But then the question that we ask in the midst of that is, is, is in partnership with the Holy Spirit, where is he inviting us towards and away from risk? And, and I think a valuable process for us, I'd say be good for all of us to do, is we started looking through Scripture and looking at times specifically with Jesus where there's times that he moved towards risk, but there's also times he pulled back. He realized it's not yet my time. And so for us, this trip, you know, we, we wrestled through, Lord, is this the time for us to go? There were potentially dangerous situations we were going to be going into. Um, you know, we have in the past had some contingencies in place regarding our children. What, what's going to happen if something happens to us? Who's going to care for them? Um, but in this context with Iraq, we just asked, is this a risk that you want us to move towards with the foundation in place that, that we're going to lay our lives down when you call us to for the gospel? And I think with, with this trip, the Lord just made it so clear that it really was the right time to go. It was the right time to go being pregnant and having little ones and just felt his hand upon us. Um, but I, I was mentioning to Randy and Kelsey, leading up to the trip, I did have like, like three really bad nightmares and had to really struggle with fear, to be honest. And I wanted to share that with you guys to not make it seem like we're heroes and um, people who are never afraid. Like I really was fearful um, and had to just work through those dreams and didn't feel like they were warning dreams. I felt like the enemy was just really trying to bring anxiety and fear and stop me from wanting to go. Um, and when we arrived, um, the tangible presence of the Lord in the land was just incredible. Um, and it was something that I, I just, I'm so happy to have experienced. Like it, it was really life-changing and really believe the Holy Spirit is moving so powerfully there, but you can feel it. And people are, are coming to Jesus so easily. There's such a hunger to want to know him in the Middle East right now, and particularly in Iraq and Kurdistan. Um, and, and there were times where, you know, I could feel fear coming up, just hearing stories about people who had been captured from ISIS, et cetera, and the potential of, of ISIS coming back, you know, and, um, but the Lord just kept saying, I'm right here with you. And you could just feel him and hear his voice so clearly. And I was sharing that with a friend after we got back and our son Zadok was listening to me share that. And he's like, why wouldn't everyone want to go to Iraq and experience the presence of the Lord? Like, we should all go. Let's go now. <laughs> I was like, yes, Zadok, <laughs> we all should go. And you could just feel like this hunger welling up in him. Like, I want to experience the presence of the Lord like that. And so just wanted to share that because I feel like there's some of you who may go at some point. Um, and, and it's just incredible when, when the Lord is there and moving. Um, and I believe that that just is that trumps all fear. It's a perfect example of what we were talking about, and I will be with you always. That idea of stepping into sending, and suddenly he's there with you. Now, uh, Steve and Kristen, Kelsey and I have known since dinosaurs roamed the earth. It's been a while. Uh, and knew them in South Dakota, knew them when they were in Scotland, and, and the Lord has just kind of intermeshed our lives. And one of the beautiful things about doing missions in this day and age is we're still in fairly close contact. Honestly, every couple of days, we're texting back and forth. We're on the phone, which is great. However, I do understand you're there and we're here. And text doesn't do it justice and does not suffice at times. What does a missionary, I'm not just saying yourselves, but in general, maybe yourselves, but what does a missionary wish that the congregation back home knew about what it was like and what they're going through? 
Well, I'm thankful um, for the relationship that we have with the bridge. I'm very thankful for that. Um, I, I want you to start everyone here using the vocabulary that, you know, we have uh, people in Alaska. Yeah. This is our work. It's not this what the Hickeys are doing and some of us care about it, some of them don't. Um, it's very strategic. And so um, I, I just think ownership of what's going on there. We consider ourselves um, part of ascending situation and we're, you know, maybe there, but you come there too. See, missions used to be for years. Once a year, we have a missions week. Somebody comes in who lived over in Columbia or somewhere far away and scary and showed a slideshow and we all looked at it and wrote a $50 check missions week and that was missions. Today missions is, you know where we are, we know where you are, You're, you know, our, uh, we're all on social media, we communicate, my prayer team is here, we did a spiritual warfare seminar when we had some demonic stuff going on on the campus and um, you guys were praying and, 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 uh, and uh, you come there, those students come here. It's just today we're way more connected. It's relational missions is what it is. And so I just, I just don't want the distance to feel um, like you're not, it's just this thing out there. Um, come and be a part of our lives and our work, you know, uh, please. It's, it's what God's calling us to. And the native component, you may think, well, that's just their little niche. No, um, you know, a few days ago was the National Day of Prayer and Senator Sam Brownback got on there and read the National Apology to Native Americans. One of the key shifts over America is the righting of the wrong that happened there and it's still underway. Um, and and um, we've been a part of that for two decades or more in South Dakota with natives there. The Alaska situation with natives is very different. But, um, you know, so for the bridge to have a connection into what God is doing with native reconciliation and reaching a forgotten and hurting people is actually a very strategic, I want you to see your work there is a very strategic aspect of national um, uh, of a, yeah, reconciliation. Yeah. Good. Now, one thing that has changed in the missions world is that, uh, you know, back in the day when we started in ministry, missionaries were all old. Like you had the hoops you had to jump through to get approved to go would take decades to do. And there's been a shift towards shorter training programs and sending younger people. Um, Daniel, any thoughts on that? Or A lot of thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, let me let me tie it in with yeah. with the question and what you guys were saying, and, and we also have a long history with the Hickeys. We were in Sioux Falls for well, I was there for ten years, and you were there most of that time. Um, so it's fun to be up here together. The, the one of the most impacting messages I was thinking about it this past week that I ever heard was was Kristen gave a teaching on fasting, and I remember you talking about like you know doing a three day fast and. You were, you were, I know this isn't your reality, but you were sympathizing with those of us who struggle with that and talking about, you know, on that third day, it's okay if you don't really want to get out of bed. And, da, da, da. and I had one of those days this week and I'm like, thank you, Kristen. <laughs> um, but, but I think with this reality that there's more and more young people who are saying, yes, I will go. I think the responsibility of the church piece becomes that much greater mm. Because I think back when we, we were in our 20s when we moved to China, we were there for seven years. And on the back side of that, where, where our hearts have shifted more towards, you know, we, we want to be 
you know, in, in the frontier, but we want to do it as, as well as caring for people. The question of what do they need? And, and just three quick things that I think we can pa- unpack and flush out as we go along is that missionaries and especially young ones, they, they want connection. They want growth and they want care. And, and so um, those are things that we didn't understand going in, but it's just like with, with young people, Going into what was the question? I'm sorry. <laughs> Something about this what, influx what, of young what people. What might missionaries? Uh, what might congregations not be aware of the missionaries? What was the question, Steve? <laughs> Let me go back to the, the written Something question. About all these young people going what, into missions. Yeah. Just um, what your thoughts were on that? Yeah. No, I think it's I think it's amazing. And uh, he had, he had texted us the questions. You said, "What are the pros? What are the cons? Or the minuses?" And, and I think the pro is that young people have the faith to see it through. You know, you get around 18, 19, 20-year-olds, and they have no clue what they are not capable of, which sometimes it's like, you know, think a little bit. But, but on the other hand, it's like, this is amazing. There's faith in a generation that believes we can actually see the Great Commission fulfilled in our day. And, and so I'm in, in my heart, it's like, I want to do everything I can to fuel and launch them into the nations of the earth because they have faith to pray. I mean, I mean, the Lord is raising up such an anointing on worship in the context of missions. Um, and so there's such strength that can be brought to the, the great commission work through young people. I think on the flip side, the challenge is, approaching missions with young people in a way that's sustainable, both for them and for the work. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I came across this statistic recently that 50% of people that go into missions will serve for one term, they'll come back and never return to the field. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's this tension between they're, they're the ones available. Obviously, it's easier for a single 20-year-old to get to the field than a family of five. There, there's that dynamic, but they're also the ones that are like, here I am, Lord, send me. On the flip side is this dynamic of is the capacity of their inner life and their heart commensurate for the capacity of the assignment that they're going into? And, and a lot of times the answer is no, because we, we have no idea what we're getting into. But, but how can we as a church support and strengthen and fuel missions where we're all about sending young people because we're all about being there for the long haul and helping them develop and grow and offering continual training and equipping and, and care in a way that will really cause them to thrive and, and maintain a vibrancy of heart when they're on the field. I, I got a thought on this. Randy. Go ahead. Yeah, this is very, very important point as a pastor. Um, I would have people 35 and 40 years old come into my office frustrated in their lives because what happened is they felt like God called them into the ministry, called them into admissions, wanted them to go when they were 18, 19, and 20, but they got into a different track and it's the world's track. And I am one who is a big advocate for higher education. If you know my background, I am one who has done it and think there's a value in it. But what happens is 18 and 19, all of a sudden the devil gets them for the rest of their lives because they go down the track of, um, they go to school, they get the school loan. Now they gotta have a, uh, they gotta have a job immediately afterwards and the job means they gotta have a car. They got a car, then they meet somebody, they get married and all of a sudden they get married and they have two or three kids and they are locked out of the mission field for, 
a long time and they always feel like they were supposed to say yes to the Lord. So we made a priority to keep freedom as a value for our younger generation. We've even taken big offerings. I remember one time, just a $12,000 love offering one night to free up a guy's school loan so he and his wife could go into all the world uh, to sh share the gospel. So I worry about this generation, that just the world system, the way it is today, locking our young people down before they even can say yes to the Lord. We were 18 and 19 going to the Urbana Mission Conference, very aware at that time of these two tracks, very aware of these two tracks. So I, I would say keep, keep these young people free somehow yeah. to go. That's good. That's a good thought. It's, I've heard it said it's, it's tragically unfair that at a stage in your life when you are least equipped to make big decisions, you make the decisions that chart the course for the rest of your life. And you see people that make choices and then it takes them decades back around and the Lord's gracious and it all works out. But how much easier if we can keep them free in that season? Well, we want to take a minute and pray for them. I, I, cannot, I cannot express to you how unusual it is for a church of our size and development to have two couples of this caliber doing missions out of this. This is just rare, guys. If you're not in the church world, this just doesn't happen. And, and they're here along with me to tell you that our mission on the day-to-day -day basis in our workplace or with our neighbors, all of it counts exactly like this. Like the souls matter just as much. We had a conversation the other day with somebody who said, yeah, share the gospel with three or four people at a table uh, at a recreational event I was at. So they're in missions, you're in missions as well. Their challenges are a little different, but your opportunities are just as great. I'm going to ask if Isaac would come back and I'm just going to invite you to stand with me. And if you guys would just stay here for just a moment. Uh, Kelsey, if you could join me and uh, grab up one of these mics. I want to ask you to help pray for them. Father, we thank you for the Hickey family. We thank you for the Grenzes. Father, for the calling that we feel on their lives. We, it resonates with us. What they're saying, hey, we think the Lord is saying, we see it in their lives. We're moved by the opportunities that you've put before them. And God, if you would allow us to partner with these two couples, what an honor and a privilege it would be. Lord, we are believing that they are first fruits of others that will go from this congregation, maybe even in this meeting right now, people will begin to think of their lives differently, make different choices, keep their obligations light, lift their sail to what the Holy Spirit is saying. Lord, we ask that the bridge would be a center of sending around the world and across the city in Kansas City. if you would just pray for the grandsons and the kids. So Father, we just are so thankful for these families who've said yes. I think of the Hickeys and almost their whole family has gone with them. And we just ask God that you would anoint them, refresh them yes. with 
with just a, a freshness, a fresh wind in their spirit while they're here. God, I ask that we could be a refreshing to them, that the relationships, the friendships, and the joining together would fuel them, God, to go back. And we just say, we commit that we are with them. This is our work in Alaska. And we're so thankful to be a part of it. Father, we're asking for open doors of opportunity.